This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. But to all my friends and family here in South Philly, uh, greet you in the name of Christ. On behalf of uh, Grace City, a church very far from here, but in the same city, at like polar ends, uh, we are family in Christ, so it's good to be here together. So what I want to do is I want to read just one verse, um, and if you come from Baptist churches like I do, they always said, you can always tell how a guest preacher's sermon is going to be. If they read a long text, it's going to be a short sermon, because they know what they wanted to say. If it's a short text, it's going to be a super long sermon. Um, and so I only have one verse for you today. So you're basically going to have Joe coming up here trying to yank me off like the Apollo because I'm just going to go in until it's time to go or until I really need some water. Um, so I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. Very good but very unusual verse in the Old Testament. I'm going to steal somebody's water. In, a verse, in verse 10, it reads this way. When it goes well for the right, with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. To make it a little bit clearer, I want to read it for you in another translation. I want to read it from the CSB version. Verse 10 reads this way in CSB. When the righteous thrive, a city rejoices. When the wicked die, there is joyful shouting. For the time that is mine, I want to talk from the topic, Rejoicing Our City. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our sovereign God, our Father, the lover of our souls, Lord, we thank you for the ability to come together and to worship. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness, for your character, for your consistency. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this moment and hollow it out, that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do, and that you would convict, convince, and convert to the furtherance of your kingdom, Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight alone, Lord. You're my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I haven't known what normal is like since I was five years old. I turned 41 years old this year. And so it's been about 36 years since I could probably attest to what feels like normal. Um, on an afternoon, on a spring day, just like this one, uh, my mother had dropped me off to be babysat by my paternal grandmother in West Philly, right off of Market Street. And as with most 80s kids, the babysitter for us is actually the TV. And so she left me in the living room and one in the bedroom, and for a couple hours, I just watched TV. And it was the weirdest thing to me because she never came out the bedroom for hours. And then my mom arrived to pick me up, maybe 5, 5.30, and my grandmother comes out the bedroom, and there's a bunch of people in there, and they all look dazed, they look sleepy, the room is smoky, I have no idea what's going on. And it's so weird, the things that you can remember for like all your life, because I remember the next moment so well. Here's my mom coming to pick me up. She's about 21 at the time. And my grandmother says to her, Rita, you need to go in there 
and get you some of that. I said, I have no idea what they're talking about. My mother, I remember her saying, no, no, I got to take Eric. We got to go. Or she would say, E, nobody calls me Eric. And we leave. And what I learned later was that my grandmother and her friends were doing heroin in the room, a couple other drugs. And they just left me. And they were so incapacitated, anything could have happened to me, they wouldn't have known. And so what, what I began to experience from that day on was the crack epidemic beginning in West Philadelphia and seeing my own family shook by drugs and seeing and experiencing my own grandmother enticing my own mother to take part in the same drug that was disabling her. And would spend years going through drug dealers coming to the door looking to collect debts that she owed, seeing her go from heroin to crack, bouncing back and forth between things, seeing it go through all of my family, all of my neighborhood. Nothing was ever the same and I was never the same. And if you and I are honest, all of us can go back to a moment where normal stopped for us. Whether you look at it in just your life or you look at it biblically, you go all the way back to the garden. One thing is true for every person in this room. All of us are looking for, desiring, and working for some sense of normal. And if we're honest, we don't even feel normal. Our homes are not normal. Our jobs are not normal. Our marriages are not normal. Guys, if you agree with me, just blink and breathe. One, two, everybody. See, they all agree with me. And all of us, to some degree, want to feel some sense of wholeness. We want to feel like things are going to be okay. We want to feel like what we lost at some point in life is going to be returned. We want to know what it was like to be innocent and whole and clean and not have to deal with the memories and the afflictions and the trauma that we have. And, and the good news today is that Christ is at work. The bad news is, is that trauma and sin is at work in our city, in our nation, in the world right now. There are people right here in this city today that are suffering from more than just drug issues but sin in all its forms, sin in institutions, sins in the family, sins even in churches. And we all want to get some help and healing for our trauma. The news about the gospel is more than just that God saves us and takes us to heaven. The gospel is more than just fire insurance, as I was taught when I was little. If you get saved, you don't go to hell, do whatever for life. Just don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with them that do, and you're going to be good till you get to heaven, right? You ever heard that when you were young? But the gospel that I've learned to believe is of a God who came to save not just men and women, but all of creation. One who said from the moment of the fall that I'm going to come and I'm going to redeem what man cannot redeem for himself. And I'm going to restore all that was lost. The paradise lost will be paradise restored. That my grace is so significant that even the trauma that you've gone through will be a far memory compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And so God had to come and be afflicted by trauma to heal our trauma, so much so that for eternity we will see the marks of his trauma, of his bruising, of his brokenness. Think about that. One million years from now, Jesus will still have scars. That's how deep and broken we truly are. But the other good news that we often forget is that just as God has a plan for our city, you and I are part of God's plan A for Philadelphia. 
Sometimes we can get so spiritual, we'll ask for God to do stuff, but we don't look for God to use us in doing the stuff. We're like, Lord, the city's going crazy, and, and the politicians are losing their mind. Lord, would you help our city? And God says, yes, that's why I have you here. We often forget the fact that the, the gospel calls every believer to make much of Christ publicly right where we are. It was a great place for AM. Everybody failed. Let's try it again. This is, this is a, a, a gospel calling that we've been placed and prompted and prospered by God to bless our city, right? Amen? There we go. All right. Everybody's awake. I was going to say we need to get some Starbucks or something in here when I come down. I don't know what it is. So, so if you are like me and you struggle with what you see around you, I want to embrace you to, to grasp on the deepness and the richness of the gospel beyond just what's going to happen in heaven, but instead see how heaven is filtering its way down into earth through God's people, through his righteous ones, as it says in verse 10. Uh, if we were to look at that in the Hebrew, it's a very interesting uh, verse. It's one that almost doesn't make sense when you look at it. It's very counterintuitive because um, it's saying, if you pay attention, that when God's people thrive, it's a cause for rejoicing in the city. We're kind of used to, I, I want to thrive, I want to prosper. We're not used to, if so-and-so were to prosper, I know it'll benefit me. I mean, if you've lived in America long enough, you've heard the phrase before, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer, right? You've heard it plenty of times, but, but this verse is, is, is painting a picture for us of a people who have such integrity, such a love for mercy, and such a love for God that when they are blessed, everyone around them is blessed. That when they are positioned with authority, with influence to prosper, everyone around them benefits from the overflow, the trickle-down righteousness, if you want to call it that. that. That somehow God overflows in the life of the righteous so that everyone around them starts to feel and see foreshadowing of a new normal. Here's the big idea for my message today. God positions and prospers his people for the pleasure, peace, and prosperity of the city right where they are and with what they have. The righteous in the text, if you were to translate from the Hebrew, um, singular is the word sadik. That's the righteous or the just. And when we look at the plural of sadik, we have sadikim. The sadikim is the, the plural. These are the righteous ones. Um, you know, in the New Testament, we just, we'd be like the saints or the Christians. But in Hebrew, where we're going to live today, we are the sadikim. And all of us, every one of us, has been called by God to be a foreshadow of God's ethics, of his kingdom principles, and of his reality on earth. Um, I once heard an illustration that was really good from Tony Evans. He said, you ever go to Baskin Robbins, and you know they have those little pink spoons? And you go and get a whole bunch, and you basically steal ice cream because you asked for more than you should be, right? And you just work your way down and try them all, and you get a little taste. You don't get enough to satisfy you. Um, you still got to go back and get the double scoop, but you've tried basically everything, right? Every one of the Sadakim is God's little purple spoon. And everywhere we are outside of church, in our jobs, in our home, on the block, we are a foreshadow, we're a taste of God's kingdom principles. That means that outside of here, inside of here, on my Instagram, on my Twitter, I am more Sadakim than I am Democrat. I am more Sadakim than I am Libertarian. I am more Sadakim than I am any hashtag that I can retweet. 
Because this is our, our calling. This is what Christ modeled for us with the ethics and principles of the kingdom. That's what he has caused us to see and embrace. And by that, we live it out and we rejoice the city. Here's the cool thing about that, that word in verse 10. Um, when it says that the city rejoices, it actually is saying this verb is, is not so much something we cause, but it's something we do. That the Sadakim are people who are so in love and enraptured by God's love, they view everything that God has given them as a gift and by which it's an opportunity to love God by loving people. Did you follow what I said? The Sadakim are people who are so in love with God that they view everything they have, their influence, their home, their money, their family, everything, as an opportunity to love God back by loving people. Look at the life of Christ. What did Jesus do? He came to make manifest God's love, God's righteousness, God's holiness. And in the greatest act of good, he went to the cross and suffered injustice to bring justice. That's another amen. We'll start giving demerits. And so when it says rejoices, it's not just this kind of I'm happy, let's celebrate. The rejoice is this type of triumphant, liberated, victorious celebration. You guys have heard of Juneteenth, right? That time where the slaves were, were facing the emancipation and they were excited and joyous that a new normal was going to come upon them because now was the time that they might be recognized as people and given the opportunity to pursue their own American dream. And so on the night before June 19th, they were waiting to hear the word that they were emancipated and they were going to celebrate. Amen? And so when we think about rejoices, it's not saying we get blessed by God and we give a little bit of uh, clothes or money to the Salvation Army and now we did our part and the city rejoices. Instead, it means that we use our influence, our position, our power, our money in such a way that it causes people to be liberated from what binds them. Even if it, even if it disadvantages us, even if it causes us to take a loss, here's why. When you belong to Christ, you become liberated so you can have stuff and stuff don't have you. That's bad grammar, but good theology. Christ liberates us so that things cannot have us. And so we want to talk about how do we as the Sadakim rejoice the city of Philadelphia. There's three things we have to do if we want to rejoice our city. Three dimensions to consider. Number one, we've got to be. Number two, we've got to know. And number three, we've got to do. Three words you can remember. And if it's really good, you could tweet it or post it or something. Be, know, and do. First of all, we've got to be. What do I mean? If we would do good to Philadelphia, if we would embrace this idea of the common good, that comes first out of who we are as an identity, not as something we do. Anybody can feed the poor. Anybody can give money. Anybody can help the immigrant. Anybody can fight for uh, a protest for for civil rights and for injustice. And by the way, you know what justice is? Um, the best definition I've heard of justice is justice is what love looks like in the public. That's not mine, but I stole it. When we stand in verse 10, to get an idea of good and where it comes from, you need to see the picture that we, we are standing at the base of a massive waterfall. We are at the basin below the Niagara, and above us is this reality that's pouring down to us from heaven in Proverbs 11, verse 1. And it pours all the way down to us in verse 10. So as we see our identity, we have to wait for it to come down 
in verse 1 where we see this, and I'll read it for you. It says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But a just weight is his delight. In other words, it's saying injustice is an abomination to the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. But a just weight or justice is his delight. The word being there, not just what makes him happy. It is his goodwill, his purpose. So in other words, justice must be defined by God. Goodness must be defined by God because God is the ultimate form of good. Therefore, if I would say that I'm doing good and it doesn't line up with God's character or God's will, I do bad. It means I can't look for Fox or CNN to tell me what I should be doing as a Christian. It means I can't even align myself with any particular party because as soon as the gospel takes me one way, I got to offend somebody else. So we look at God's nature. We look at Yahweh and we see goodness. We see goodness coming from him in Christ as he goes to the cross. We see goodness in Jesus as he does ministry on earth with people that the Jews would not have him deal with, like the woman at the well, like the, 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 the talk of the, uh, the um, Good Samaritan. All of these things are us, uh, Christ revealing to us God's good nature. Therefore, if you would do good for God, you must be born of God to do good. It must be an identity. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan, put it this way. He said, the, the public good is the Christian's life. Here's why. If Christ came to make God known on earth by doing good and going to the cross, then every opportunity I have in the public is my opportunity to make Jesus' reign and rule publicly manifest in Philadelphia. So now I've got to think differently and I've got to ask, what would it look like if Jesus was coming to my job? Some of you think about it the wrong Not like if he was coming to spy on you, you get in trouble. I'm talking about like if Jesus worked there, some of y'all just look down. No, I'm not talking about all that kind of stuff. You can take, you stealing paper from work and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying what would it look like if Jesus, his character, his conduct, his ethics, his morals were to come into play at my work? Um, um, there would be more things motivating me than profit. And let me tell you, as a business owner, and having been a business owner, profit is not a bad thing. I don't know what somebody told y'all. I'm, you know, I'm a capitalist pig. I want to make more profit. But there's a limit to how far I want to make some money. Um, but that is not what should motivate me, finally, as a business owner. I need profit to stay in business. I need profit because I have three kids, all hungry, very expensive, got a daughter. She likes to shop. I don't know why. I hate it. I'm venting. I'm not normal. But what we see in all of us is God's redeeming work coming in. Watch this, not just to change our, change our destiny, but to change our heart so that we desire to see Jesus ruling over every area of life. Every legitimate occupation, vocation, is an opportunity for Christ to demonstrate his rule. Whether you are in music, whether you are in business, whether you're a school teacher, you're a homemaker, it is an opportunity for the Spirit of God to work to make Christ big in your life and someone else's. Think of it this way. Um, Tim Keller broke this down in a way that was really helpful for me. We all are very familiar with the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11. A group of people come together and they do some work. They build a tower and they say they want to build this tower to make a name for themselves. You know the story, right? 
And if you know your theology that in the New Testament, when we get to the book of Acts, when the Spirit of God finally comes, Christ is resurrected, all the people begin to speak in other tongues, other known languages, and this is the reverse of the curse because God broke down the Tower of Babel and scattered them and gave them all these different languages, but now in the church, everyone is brought back together on the basis of Christ alone, and now the Spirit is doing his work. Here's where we usually stop short. The Tower of Babel, they were trying to build something in their city. Often we read the book of Acts and we say it's enough for the Spirit to get to us in the church, but not in our job and not in our community. We will see we all got the Spirit and a whole lot on Sunday. We know all the songs by heart. We know the verses by heart. We know how to come in and go and we shake hands. But what difference does it make Monday through Saturday? And I'm not trying to convict anybody. Well, I kind of am, but I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to get you to embrace the reality that God has put us here to do good to our city. Doing good is a public reflection of God himself. We must make his rule known in every area of our reality. So in order, in order to do this, if you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, you need to make him so. How do you do that? You need to surrender. Here's the other good news. If you already know Christ, you need to surrender every area of your life. It's very easy to be afflicted in that way, where I come in and I worship on Sunday and I struggle during the week with my own Sunday. You ever hear somebody, you know they don't want to change, so they go, as soon as you confront them on it, here's what they say, I, I kid you not, pray for me. Would you pray for me? I know what I should be doing, but I just need you to pray about it. See, some of y'all are smiling. The others who are not smiling, you're the ones doing it. Everybody knows who that person is like, who they don't want to change, they don't want to give up. Here's what I'm saying today. If you want to stop the moral the economic and the spiritual decline of Philadelphia, it's going to require 100% of your surrender. It doesn't require 100% of your money. It doesn't require 100% of your time. It requires you to be 100% open to whatever the Lord Jesus would want to do through you. I invite you, search your heart. Ask, does God have all of me in every area? When I'm budgeting my money, do I, do I think on these things? When, when I consider the future for my children and how they're going to go to school and what I'm speaking into their life, when I, when I think about ministry, am I waiting for the pastors to create ministry or is there something God put in my heart that I need to have a discussion about? And, and, and for most of us, a lot of what we need to do is really outside of church. It's on the job. It's, it's seeing where people are and knowing that even my best coworker without Christ is lost and on their way to damnation. And that should bother us. And I'll be honest, sometimes I have to ask God, help me be broken over that. Because there's some people I just don't like dealing with. And I never think about their soul. And when I get reminded, I'm really convicted because my prayer is usually, Lord, get them away from me. Now, please. But second, if, we, if, if God has made us good by way of salvation, if he has prospered us, we have to know. We have to know. If we would go to do the, the common good, the public good in our city, we have to move in a direction where we take inventory in two specific ways. Um, number one, we need to have a personal inventory of what we have. Because a lot of people feel like they have nothing to offer. Usually you think, all right, I'll give you my money and maybe some volunteer time and that's it. But think about all the areas that you have influence over. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then secondly, once we do a personal inventory, we have to inventory the needs and the relationships right around us in our city. 
I would say in the last year or two, in this whole public discourse over uh, race and justice in America and all the stuff on TV, I think sometimes we can be a little bit hypocritical when we know everything going on nationally and nothing in our city. Feel this way about Trump, feel this way about Biden. Who's running for mayor? I don't know. Who's your city councilman? I don't know. How are you a testimony for Christ when most of the issues that we would fight over are really happening locally? As a matter of fact, when we talk about prisons and mass incarceration, the issues are on the state and a local level. But a lot of times we look at it as though whoever the president is, they're going to change anything. That's a messiah complex where you think one person will change everything that's affecting you. What we have in our society is issues on a massively complex level. And we've got to start right where we are. Here's why. You and I are too small to try to change everything ourselves. But if I start in my house, in my relationships, on my job, I can handle that. I can't handle what happens in the White House. Most days I can't even handle Twitter. I just stopped checking. I could have been hacked by now. I don't even know. You know why? Because I'm weak and I struggle with unbelief. I struggle with knowing if God is at work in other places. As though Fox News or CNN is ever going to say, hey, here's what the church is doing in Alabama. You'll never know. But I tell you what, God is working right here right now. As sure as God called you out of darkness and called me, he has given us something to use to benefit people. Here, here's a quote I want to read you. There's a woman named Amy Sherman. She wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. If you haven't read it, I highly advise you read it. Read it twice. I got the Audible book, and I had the paperback. I think somebody stole it, but that's okay. Give it to someone. Really good. And she talks about vocation and, and how God uses us. Here's a quote she has from her book. She says, we cannot steward well that which we do not recognize we possess. I realize a lot of times I don't know what I have because I'm not grateful for what I have. I don't keep a good inventory of it. Let me give you an example. Here's your personal inventory. Your knowledge and your expertise. What are you good at? What are you educated in? Your platform. These days everybody's got social media, blogs, blogs, whatever. Um, your networks. How many of us are just tied into certain people where we could give a call to someone and be able to, to access a job, access information? How about your influence, whether it's within your job, whether it's in the civic association, your position on your job, your position in your volunteer organization? Or how about your reputation? Think about this. When you have a reputation, that means you have a certain credibility. Doesn't the Bible call us to be a voice to the voiceless? Well, how do we do that? We lend our credibility to causes where people would not otherwise be heard, but someone will listen because we said it. We have to do an inventory of what it is that we have. Let me illustrate. Some years ago, I was um, a uh, executive at a medical transportation service, and I was part of a corporate mentoring program. I was being mentored. And there was another guy in our program, and he owned a business in Juniata Park. And what he started doing years ago was he would hire a certain amount of ex-offenders every year. So the way they set it up is no matter what, here's all these entry-level jobs, they have to be managed by ex-offenders. And he would bring them in and they would give them jobs and they would pay them well. And But what he learned was one of the problems, especially with recidivism, is you can hire someone who just came home from prison. The problem is when he leaves work at 5 o'clock, he's going back to the same neighborhood, the same friends, the same people. And so they would work in these silos, and they would get the work done and do a good job, and then they'd go right back to the same environment. And so what he started doing was he even changed how the teams work at work so that you would have, whether it was an ex-offender working with someone who wasn't working with a manager, he changed things so it was less vertical and more horizontal. And what he found was folks started to make friends with one another. 
And, and there were guys who would hang out after work. So rather than going home to Kensington, now they're hanging out in Northern Liberties. Well, back then it wasn't Northern Liberties. I, I just think it was North Philly. But, you know, we'll use the pretty terms for now. And, 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 and so what happened was he saw the biggest need for the ex-defender wasn't new skills. It wasn't even employment at that point. It was they needed new relationships. They needed to be around people who were not going to be a crab in a barrel. Think about that for a minute. We, we often talk about we have to deal with those who are most vulnerable in our community. And because we read the Bible twice, we go, okay, it's the orphan and the widow. But most of you don't know many orphans or widows. So now we've got to look and take an inventory of who is the least of these on my block or in my job. Is there somebody that I'm working with? I don't know what they're going home to. Maybe that's why they get on your nerves at work, because they can't stand going home. They can't stand going back to their neighborhood. So now I can be an advocate for change right where I work. This man said change happened, productivity went up. It was amazing to him that he could impact recidivism in Philadelphia simply by giving people a new community to live in. This is what it looks like for the Sadiqim, where we go beyond just thinking about profit and we take what we do have and we use it for the common good. That was his lesson, and now we've got to go out and find our own. But you can't do it if you don't have your personal inventory and the next the needs of our city. Let me read you a verse, Psalm 41, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers them. That word considers. It literally means you're, you're attentive to the conditions of the poor. You're, you're studious when it comes to what's going on with the poor. And again, this is another conversation that you can have nationally and miss out on what's going on in Philadelphia. You say, well, we need to get jobs. We have plenty of people who are underemployed. We have plenty of people who don't know how to handle money. We have many, many people who are, who are suffering from predatory loans. I remember some years ago, you guys know about payday loans and all that, right? I got a payday loan, I think it was for $400. I paid $1,600 back by the time it was done. How many of the people around us could just use some help in understanding how to handle money? How many of us could benefit from learning how to handle money? Um, but we've got to be attentive and consider who are the poor? Who are those around us that they may not be poor in money, but they're poor in relationship? Maybe they're poor in, in their ability to, to handle parenting. Um, I knew of a church that wanted to, they had a mentor program for children, and they realized we got to have something for parents because the parents are coming and dropping off the kids, and the kids are learning, and the parents are breaking down what the children learn because the parents don't know how to raise children. And they had to restructure and change their program, and they said it was mandatory, this is right in North Philadelphia, that if you want to be able to bring your son or your daughter to the program, you have to be mentored first. You have to come to Saturday classes and learn how to cook, how to clean, how to keep your kids safe. How should your baby be sleeping at night? All the things that we assume we know, right? Because we know it, we think other people know it. And the fact is, many don't. Many may have heard of it, but they don't know that's the right way to do it because they've learned so many other ways. And so we've got to be educated if we're going to bless our city. That's what cities are for. If you think about it, think about it in the Bible. Cities are these, these, these melting pots of different culture. Remember the first city? Cain sins, killed his brother, and he's driven out, and God shows him mercy, and he builds a city, and he calls it Enoch after his son. You guys know this story. And what happened in that city and many others that came, there was many different cultures. There was a lot of polygamy. There was a lot of sin, but there was also progress. There was music. There was new tools. There was all this development because you were bringing all these people around in different ways. If you think about it, one way we can prosper Philadelphia is just to bring people together. 
Sometimes we need a think tank. Sometimes we need to see how we can get the different cultures to intermingle. I'll give you an example that I experienced last year. I was an ESL teacher for Grow Northeast. And if you know anything about like the Portuguese community in Philadelphia, um, they're nothing like the Iranian community in Philadelphia. And so we would have our Muslim students who would come in and they would be dressed very, very modestly. And then we have our Portuguese students come in who would be dressed with the weather. And sometimes it's not with the weather. It's just everything her mama gave her would be out. And, and, and so you would, I'm trying, there's kids. And so you would have our Iranian and our Pakistani students. We'd have our Asian and we'd have everybody all separated. So here's all of our immigrant community and nobody's coming together. And so we realized we couldn't just teach English. We had to try to bring people together. And over time, as they start to see, yeah, you may not agree with how she dressed and she may not like how you dress, but you have the same problems. You're both trying to make it in America. You're trying to learn where the jobs are, how to handle SEPTA. And they started to work together. And I'll tell you, it's beautiful. And sometimes we just need people who are unalike to just spend some time in a room together. I'm not saying everybody got saved and became a Christian, but it was like, okay, she learned a little bit of modesty, and this one learned how to make like really good, you know, Brazilian barbecue. Um, and it was great. And that's where community was coming. See, they were poor in relationship. Anybody could come to America and get public assistance, but some people don't have what they need in other ways. I'm moving forward, but I want to read you something. Think of our city for a second. What are three areas that people need the most? Let me read it to you. Number one, people need peace with God. What are ways that we're learning to interact with different cultures so that we can share the gospel effectively? For example, if I'm talking to a Muslim, I'm going I'm to go Old Testament. I'm going to try to talk to him about the Tanakh. I'm not going to go Billy Graham on him. Um, it, it means I'm not going to have a King James Bible. Do we pay attention to those nuances? Or do we just say, I tried and now they're going to hell. Or, or do we see where people are and figure out how to reach those cultures? Next, peace with others. How do we facilitate reconciliation and co cooperation across communities? Something else we can work for. Last, peace with creation. How do we care environmentally for our city? I know you're going to think I'm a liberal. I'm not. But God has given us this city to steward. How do we keep it clean? How do we keep it managed well? How do we make sure that there's something being done about abandoned homes and crack houses in our city? Because that does affect people. Those three areas we need to think about. And if you're not thinking about it, let me just tell you a note from my own life. Sometimes what it is is because some of us are so used to playing spiritual trolls that we never get around to talking about solutions. Because it's so easy to complain about what the church doesn't do, what the government's not doing, what the president's not going to do. You can get yourself into a bitter place where you are ineffective in your walk for Christ. You can be so caught up or you can move to a completely other extreme. And I know a lot of people like this because of what has happened in your life, what has happened to you or what you fear is going to happen. It completely leaves you stuck and you can't take inventory because all the inventory you see in your life is bad. You say, my credit's not good. My money's not good. My marriage is not good. So as soon as I get it together, God, I'll give you something. I want to invite you into something. I had to learn this for myself. I want you to come take a field trip with me to a place called Sinai. And, and on the side of a hill in Sinai is a bumbling barefoot Hebrew man named Moses. And Moses is having a conversation with God. And his whole conversation is this. I know you called me, but I don't have enough. And he begins to tell God and think on all the stuff that he was and all the things he's afraid to be. And God reminds Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that even though Moses was, God says, I am. 
The I am speaks to Moses out this burning bush, and he lets him know that I am, that I am, that I am, meaning God never will be or never was. He is simply God. He's the God, if he took one step forward, he'd bump into himself. He's that big. He's that sufficient. He's that graceful. He's that merciful. If you struggle with what I was or what you will be, you need to take inventory of God. He's the same God who could take a fish sandwich and feed 5,000 people. He's the same God who could spit in mud and give somebody their sight back. He's the same God who can encounter a thought at the well and give her a new life to go from messing with all the men she could and give her a new life to where she could say, I met a man that told me all the thought and I ever did. I'm talking about a God who can change everything in your life and it requires no down payment from you. We need an inventory of the grace and mercy of God more than anything else. He doesn't need our proper voting. He doesn't need us to get everything right. He doesn't need us to dive right all the time. What he needs is our openness to see. Put it in God's hands and he can multiply it. If you have struggled with unbelief at what God can do, I invite you to repent. I invite you to go to scripture and learn God's promises and see what God says he will do, not just for you, but other people through you. Many times we're guilty of not being creative enough in our prayers. We pray simple little things so we can check off a box and say, I prayed, and we don't angst and we don't go through the emotions and the, the bellyache. And when you read about Jesus, the scripture says he had a bellyache when he saw, whenever it says compassion, he had a bellyache when he saw the needs of people. Ask God to give you that in your life. The wicked are the people who think only about what they can get. The wicked are the people who say, I just want to be left alone. There were 60 million Christians in Germany when Hitler came to power. And almost all were just saying, I want freedom and I want to be left alone. And there was a small group called the Confessing Church that said, we'll overturn this. And one of the men from the Confessing Church was somebody you might have heard of named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he would be jailed and eventually executed for his work for Christ. And he took it easily. You know why? He was living for a future that no political system could ever give you. He knew that if you put this body to death, God will raise it up. Whatever you do for Christ will be on it. And whatever you don't do for Christ, this is why the wicked cannot serve Christ the way you do. They can do good things because common grace exists from God. But whatever is not done of faith is sin. So you and I are the ones to do it, but we have to have inventory of what we have. And if you don't know that, take inventory of God. And so we see this, this is a, the sadakim is a result of being made new, born from above, being, and then knowing. And finally, I'm going to take my seat, doing. We have to do. And even in entering this, there's a certain amount of responsibility church leaders like me have to take because we've not always done a good job at equipping people to take their faith outside of church. We'll, we'll equip you to evangelize, we'll equip you to do stuff in church, and then we'll hold you accountable to make sure you came to church, right? But we haven't always taught people about the value of their vocation, the value of their job, the value of being occupied on your block with talking to people and getting to know your neighbors. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to equip all of our people. If you're a small group leader, you're a deacon, you're a pastor, I don't even know if y'all got deacons, but now I just gave it to you. Um, we, we need to be at a place where we equip our people to take Christ to work. And then secondly, we need to do our work with a missional focus. I'm talking about your job, your vocation, the 40 hours a week you have. I was reading Martin Luther this week. Martin Luther is like the first one to come up with a the theology of work as we understand it. Um, Martin Luther 
said this. He said that our work is likened to the fingers of God moving on earth. In other words, when a woman is milking a cow, Martin Luther said God is milking a cow through that woman because she's doing legitimate and good work. And Tim Keller gave the example. He said, um, how do, what does a Christian pilot look like? He lands the plane, and he lands it well. You be super spiritual all you want, but until you do your job well, you don't have a testimony for Jesus Christ. When Christ is in you, you'll want to be the best of your field. You want to get more skills, not so you get more money, but so you can glorify God in that. If I am a Sadiq Uber driver, then I know it is God's fingers moving through me to transport people safely and graciously to where they have to go. If I'm a school teacher, I know that as a Sadiqim, God is in the classroom with me, giving me patience to bear what I have to bear to teach these children and instruct young minds, as long as what I'm teaching is in line with God's design. Somebody say amen. If I have to teach something that is not in line with God's word, I need to figure out a way out of that situation. I might be making somebody uncomfortable. I'm not saying you got to be a creepy Christian. You got to go there with your bumper stickers and all that. But you need to find a way to pray and get God to use you to do something better for our children. Because right now, Satan is attacking the next generation. And anytime Satan wants to do something, he attacks families and he attacks men. Children and men, no offense, sisters, but if you think about the state of men in Philadelphia, you look at mass incarceration, you look at our court system. I know men who have been locked up and lost jobs because they were late on child support payments. How can you take care of your children if you get locked up, then you lose the job, and now you owe more arrears? I'm not arguing for deadbeats. Do you hear what I'm saying? But what I am saying, we want to live as the Sadiq and see things in line with God's character in line with God's goodness. If I work in finance, then my ultimate goal is not profit. I will refuse to participate in unjust practices that take advantage of people. And that might mean taking less profit, or it might mean losing a job. But because we're motivated by more than just profit status or power, because sin's power over us is broken, our identity now is lovers of people because God has loved us. Skip over a whole lot because I came with a whole lot of illustrations because I think we really need to think on and imagine what it looks like to be Sadakim in our city. There was another guy that I heard of. His name is Doug Wilson. He's retired, but down in Alabama, um, Indiana, I'm sorry, he was the VP of Human Resources. I love this story. I got to tell you this one. Um, he was the VP of Human Resources at a manufacturing plant. They had 100 people working there. What they found when they did a study was that their 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 health insurance rates were sky high and they were increasing every year because the employees were getting worse off every year also. And so he did a survey for the HR group and they found that employees weren't very healthy. They also struggled to meet their co-pays, pay their medical bills, and they often didn't have time to go to the doctor. So you have this employee population that's not doing good work because they don't feel good. And so what he did was he partnered with a nonprofit and he developed a plan to rejoice the workers of this plant. This is a Christian man. And so he, 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 wanted, he proposed that they should have a wellness clinic with a pharmacy, physician, nursing staff, all within the plant. And, and he brought it to the board of directors. He showed them what it was going to cost. And he said after three years, what they should do, they'll get a full return and break even. Less people will go out on sick leave, less injuries, um, and they'll finally make a profit after three years. And so they okayed it, and they developed this clinic. Here's what they found. After one year... Not only were they ready to go down on insurance premiums, but the company was at a $300,000 profit because people were actually going to the clinic because it was right there around them. 
they had an opportunity to go. They didn't have to pay co-pays. They could go to the pharmacy right there. So the employees got healthier, the workforce got better, and they became more productive and made profit. That's good profit to me. Somebody say amen. We want that kind of money, right? Somebody say yes. Any business owners in here, you need to agree with me. Don't make me look bad by myself. We want to be able to pursue that type of gain. So when God puts us in positions of power, we are able to care for people. That is what we want to move towards. Uh, and things like this. My favorite movie ever, the movie called Black Hawk Down. Y'all ever saw it? Like poor people? Okay. Um, years ago, I was in the military, and I always heard this story about what happened um, in Mogadishu. And then I finally saw the movie, and it's this great movie about how, well, it's not a great movie. It's a well-made movie depicting a very sad story about U.S. soldiers that were nailed down in the uh, Bakara market in Somalia. And you had like a hundred Army Rangers, Green Berets, a couple other guys that were stuck, and everything in the whole city was coming at them. People are shooting RPGs, bullets, uh, machine guns, everything. And over the course of, I think it was three days, they were nailed down. But the movie just gives you like one glimpse, uh, one night. And at the end of this movie, you see everybody is like shot up. Everybody's hurt. Glass is broken out of the truck. This guy's got glass all in his face. He can't drive. And so this colonel gets in and he yells at the private, drive, we gotta go, we gotta get going. The man says, I'm hit, I can't drive. And Colonel McKnight looks at him and he says, we are all hit, but we got to drive and we got to go. And the reality is, Philadelphia is not in a great place. And all of us have been hit in one way or another by sin's effects, by despair, by despondency, whatever you want to say. But we can no longer just say, I can't drive. God has called us and given this moment for us to be the church, to be the Sadiqim right where we are, though we are wounded by trauma and sin, Christ will bind us. He will heal us. He will keep us. Start today. Get in and drive right where you are. Get in a small group. Talk to a pastor. Talk to somebody and say, what do you think my inventory is? What do I have? Because there is a city waiting for you and I to rejoice it for Christ's sake. This is your birthright as the born again. Let me pray for us. Let's bow for prayer.